Okay. Thought we were going to finish the discussion of covenant theology last week, but we had such a long discussion on baptism, a very good discussion. I'm not complaining. I enjoyed it. Um, but we had such a long discussion. I did not get to the next sacrament. Um, so that is the plan. We're going to try to discuss that this evening. And assuming we get done with it, then we'll be done uh, discussing covenant theology. So since we're still here, I'm going to start by reading where we're at in the confession. <clears throat> this is chapter 7, sections 2 and 3. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, please the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who are, are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. <coughs> Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. And so last week, what we started <coughs> considering was the covenant signs, the sacraments of the covenant. And uh, we talked about that there are only two of those, even though there are other groups that uh, try to say that there are as many as seven. Um, but no, biblically, there are only two. These are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we covered baptism last week. But before we get into the Lord's Supper, there is something I want to reread. We read it last week. But um, I want to bring it back to your remembrance because it's going to be important for our discussion um, regarding the Lord's Supper. So, Louis Burkhoff <clears throat> discussed the union of the sign with that which it signifies, okay? And this was in the context of baptism, but the principle will still apply when we talk about the Lord's Supper, and so that's why I'm going to bring this quotation back to your remembrance. He says, this is usually called the forma sacramenta, which could bring that into English, forma here meaning essence, uh, because it is exactly the relation between the sign and the thing signified that constitutes the essence of the sacrament. According to the Reformed view, this is A, not physical, as Roman Catholics claim, as if the thing signified were inherent in the sign, and the reception of the materia externa, which is just Latin for external material, necessarily carried with it our participation in the materia interna, internal material. B, nor is it local, as the Lutherans represent it, as if the sign and the thing signified were present in the same space, so that both believers and unbelievers receive the full sacrament when they receive the sign. C, but spiritual, or as Turretin expresses it, relative and moral, so that where the sacrament is received in faith, the grace of God accompanies it. That's why we would call it the means of grace. The grace of God accompanies it. 
uh, Burkhoff continues, according to this view, the external sign becomes a means employed by the Holy Spirit in the communication of divine grace. The close connection between the sign and the thing signified explains the use of what is generally called sacramental language in which the sign is put for the thing signified or vice versa. And we read some verses where uh, scripture speaks of the sign as if it were the thing that it signifies. Okay, <clears throat> Just to try to show you um, that's perfectly biblical and normal to do. Um, so, keeping that in mind, now let's um, turn to a consideration of the Lord's Supper. And as we consider this sacrament and ordinance, keep in mind everything we just discussed with Burkhoff, uh, particularly with reference to the sacramental union of the sign and the thing signified, discussed it under the heading of baptism. Now we're going to apply it to the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, <clears throat> I'm again going to turn to Burkhoff because there are four primary views of the Lord's Supper. Okay, what's going on when the church partakes of the Lord's Supper? Okay, and I at least want to mention all four of these. Um, two of them, I think, will be no surprise we reject. Right out of hand, I'm not really aware of any Baptist church that holds to the first two. The second two are going to be the majority Baptist view, and then there's going to be the biblical view. Um, and we're going to take them in that order. So the first view is the view of Rome and Constantinople. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, this is the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, Burkhoff has this to say. The Church of Rome conceives of the sacramental union in a physical sense. I'm going to bring you back to the first quotation from him. Remember, he mentioned that. Rome looks at uh, sacramental union in a physical sense. So he goes on to say, It is hardly justified, however, in speaking of any sacramental union at all, for according to its representation, there is no union in the proper sense of the word. What he means by that, the sign is not joined to the thing signified, but makes way for it, since the former passes into the latter. When the priest utters the formula, and this is Latin for hoc est corpus mum, bread and wine change into the body and blood Christ. It is admitted that even after the change, the elements look and taste like bread and wine. While the substance of both is changed, uh, their properties remain the same. In the form of bread and wine, the physical body and blood of Christ are present. The supposed scriptural ground for this is found in the words of the institution, this is my body. We read that last week and we'll probably read it again before we're done today, but when Christ instituted this, he held up the bread. This is my body. He held up the, the cup. This is my blood. Okay, So they take that in the most literal sense possible, really believing that the elements, when the priest says these this Latin phrase over it, really do change into the body and the blood of Christ, even if to the physical eye and to the taste, it's the same. Okay? Um, so we would uh, most certainly reject this view 
Um, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the uh, next view is because the argument against this view will be the same as the second view. So the next view is the Lutheran view. This is called kind substantiation, kind with, okay, with the substance. Uh, again, Burkhoff says, Luther rejected the doctrine of transubstantiated uh, substantiation and substituted for it the related doctrine of consubstantiation. According to him, bread and wine remain what they are, but there is in the Lord's Supper, nevertheless, a mysterious and miraculous real presence of the whole person of Christ, body and blood, in, under, and along with the elements, thus con with the substance. He and his followers maintained the local presence. And remember, he talked about that in baptism too. The local presence of the physical body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. Lutherans sometimes deny that they teach the local presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, but then they ascribe to the word local a meaning not intended by those who ascribe this teaching to them. When it is said that um, they teach the local presence of the physical nature of Christ, this does not imply that all other bodies are excluded from the same portion of space, nor that the human nature of Christ is nowhere else, as for instance in heaven, but it does mean that the physical nature of Christ is locally present in the Lord's Supper, as magnetism is locally present in the magnet, and as the soul is locally present in the body. Okay, first of all, Scripture does not teach either one of these, and that's the primary reason that uh, we would reject them. Um, but I just mentioned to you the scriptural grounds for which both of these would be argued. This is my body. This is my blood. Well, if that's not what he meant, he must have meant something else because that is in the Bible. Here's why that can't be true. Christ's physical body is human. Okay? He is one Christ, but he has two natures that are not mixed and mingled. Okay? His human nature remains a human nature. His divine nature remains a divine nature. They're not mixed or mingled in any way, shape, or form. He's one person with two natures. All right? So according to the human nature, he has all the same properties we have. I can't be in two places at once, neither can you. And according to his human nature, Christ cannot either. His human body is physically in heaven right now. So if he's physically in heaven right now, he can't be physically present in the supper. And that's what trans and consubstantiation are teaching, of course, in different ways. But still, the idea is that physically the human nature is present, and that's what we're feasting upon. So, you have a lot of Christological problems if you want to hold to that view. Um, you are essentially mixing the natures, then you are attributing to the human that which is only divine. And historically, the church has confessed, you don't do that. That's heresy. Um, so, if it's not either one of those, we have two more views. So, the next one is... What I'm going to say is probably, at least in the United States anyway, the majority view, <clears throat> among Baptists anyway, um, or the Zwinglian view, uh, which is ironic, Zwingli would probably have us all killed 
for being Baptist, but that's another matter. Anyway, uh, majority Baptists have, at least in the United States, have adopted Zwingli's view of the supper. Burkhoff has this to say, um, there is a very general impression, not altogether without foundation, that Zwingli's view of the Lord's Supper was very defective. He is usually alleged to have taught that it is a bare sign or symbol figuratively representing or signifying spiritual truths or blessings and that its reception is a mere commemoration of what Christ did for sinners and above all, a badge of the Christian's profession. This hardly does justice to the Swiss reformer, however. Some of his statements undoubtedly convey the idea that to him the sacrament was merely a commemorative rite and a sign and symbol of what the believer pledges in it. But his writings also contain statements that point to a deeper significance of the Lord's Supper and contemplate it as a seal or pledge of what God is doing for the believer in the sacrament. In fact, he seems to have changed his view somewhat in the course of time. It was very hard to determine exactly what he did believe in this matter. But regardless... And that's the end of the Burkhoff quote. But regardless of what Zwingli himself believed, this has been attributed to him, and it is now the majority view in United States Baptist churches that it is merely a commemoration. Okay? It's just symbolism. There's nothing beyond the symbolism. It is just symbolism. And uh, really the only reason that we do it is because Jesus told us to which is a sufficient reason to do something. But uh, <clears throat> there's certainly more to it than just merely symbolism. There is symbolism, but not merely symbolism. So, that being the case, there's only one other view, and this is the view that we would take uh, along with the confession, which I do intend to get into the confession itself momentarily, but I just wanted to present these four views before we do that. This is the Reformed view. Um, it does affirm a real presence of Christ in the sacrament, but not in the way that Rome does, and not in the way that the Lutherans do. Um, we do not affirm the physical body is present either in the sacrament or with and under it. Um, so, uh, again, Burkhoff <clears throat> has this to say, and I will go ahead and say before I start, he says, our view is in alignment with John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin did hold to the view of the supper, the, the real presence within the supper um, that we're about to put forward and affirm. Um, but Burkhoff says, Calvin objects to Zwingli's doctrine of the Lord's Supper, A, that it allows the idea of what the believer does in the sacrament to eclipse the gift of God in it, and B, that it sees in the eating of the body of Christ nothing more nor higher than faith in his name and reliance on his death. According to him, the sacrament is connected not merely with the past work of Christ, with the Christ who died, as Zwingli seems to think, but also with the present spiritual work of Christ, with the Christ that is alive in glory. He believes that Christ, though not bodily and locally present in the supper, is yet present, real presence, and enjoyed in his entire person, both body and blood. He emphasizes the mystical communion of believers with the entire person of the Redeemer. 
His representation is not entirely clear, but he seems to mean that the body and blood of Christ, though absent and locally present only in heaven, communicate a life-giving influence to the believer when he is in the act of receiving the elements. That influence, though real, is not physical, but spiritual and mystical, is mediated by the Holy Spirit, and is conditioned on the act of faith by which the communicant symbolically receives the body and blood of Christ. As to the way in which this communion with Christ is affected, there is a twofold representation. Sometimes it is represented as if by faith the communicant lifts his heart to heaven where Christ is. Sometimes as if the Holy Spirit brings the influence of the body and blood of Christ down to the communicant. Dabney positively rejects the representation of Calvin as if the communicant partakes of the very body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. This is undoubtedly an obscure point in Calvin's representation. Sometimes he seems to place too much emphasis on the literal flesh and blood. Perhaps, however, his are to be understood sacramentally, that is, in a figurative sense. This view of Calvin is that found in our confessional standards. A very common interpretation of the dubious point in Calvin's doctrine is that the body and blood of Christ are present only virtually, and that is, in the words of Dr. Hodge, that the virtues and effects of the sacrifice of the body of the Redeemer on the cross are made present and are actually conveyed in the sacrament to the worthy receiver by the power of the Holy Ghost, who uses the sacrament as his instrument according to his sovereign will. So the idea is there is a real presence of Christ spiritually. Now we're talking about deity. Now we can do that without having any sort of Christological errors. Now we can uh, affirm that Christ is present in the sacrament just as he would be present in baptism, which we talked about last week. He would be present in this sacrament. Um, So those four views being put forward. Now let's kind of get into what we really want to talk about. Confessionally. Um, in chapter 30, section 1 of our confession, it says this. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him, just like baptism was instituted by him, The same night he was betrayed, it is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other, and thus we often call the supper communion. What the supper signifies, let's consider that first. Just as was with Christian baptism, this sacrament was directly instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ for the purpose or the purposes of remembrance and the displaying of his sacrificial death until he returns in glory. So uh, our first passage we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 20.
Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, and this is the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, <clears throat> something that I've heard uh, explained here, and I believe is probably what's actually going on. Um, I would not um, I would not fight to the death over this, but I think it probably is what was going on. Uh, the context of this institution was Passover, right? And each of the Passover elements represented something. So you would have had whoever was the head of the uh, Passover supper, the head of the household, so to speak. Explaining this, taking the element, this represents this, this represents that. Okay, Christ is now saying, this bread is my body. This cup is my blood of the new covenant. Okay, I, I think that's probably what's going on there. I don't think he was meaning to convey the idea that quite literally, this, this bread is turning into my body as I stand before you and this cup is turning into my blood literally before I stand, uh, right as I stand before you, even before I've given the sacrifice of myself. Because you have to understand, in transubstantiation, what is happening is Christ is being re-sacrificed every time. That's the idea. It's, it's an unbloody version of the bloody sacrifice. But he is being, it, it, the way they would try to argue, because um, of course in Hebrews we read that Christ died once, right? Um, the way they would argue is to say that it's not a new sacrifice, but it's a representation of the one sacrifice on the cross. Well, if that's the case, explain to me how that could be that he institutes it before he offers that sacrifice. It doesn't work. Um, and of course, there's really no biblical warrant to take that view anyway that it's a re-offering of the same sacrifice. You really have to do some gymnastics to try to get to that, I believe. But anyway, um, I think that's what's going on in the supper when he says, this is my body. I think he is trying to say, this represents my body. <laughs> this represents my blood. I'm about to give this sacrifice and you need to do this afterward to remember that. Um, he quite literally says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. I mean, it is a remembrance. Um, of course, pretty well laid the cards on the table. I'm arguing it's more than a mere remembrance, but it is a remembrance, all right? It, it is that. Um, now, uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Which, if I'm not mistaken, this is the most extensive... Uh, teaching on the supper in all of scripture I think 
First Corinthians chapter 11. And verses 17 through 34. So, be a good bit of reading here. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Is not what you want to hear from an apostle of Christ if you are in Christ's church. Uh, but he goes on, for in the first place, that's also something you want to hear. In the first place, uh, anyway, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. At church, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, as we move through here, bear in mind, this is what they were doing wrong. Not considering each other. Being selfish, being greedy. And Paul flat says, this is not the Lord's Supper because you're not doing it rightly. Then he says, so this is how you do it the wrong way. Now he's going to explain how you do it the right way. For I received from the Lord... Remember, it's instituted by the Lord. What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This, is, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclamation of the sacrifice made that we might be saved. So then he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Okay, why would that be? Anybody know why that would be? Why would you be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? And that gives you a clue as to what it means in an unworthy manner also. What, what, anybody know what's going on there? I'm going to tell you what's going on there. <clears throat> he told them what they were doing wrong, right? Then he tells them how to do it right. Now he's trying to correct what they did wrong. They were not considering each other. Okay, the body that this points to, the blood that this points to, it was broken and it was shed to save the very people that were not being considered. They trample upon the Lord by doing that. These are the very people he died to save and you're not, you're going to deny them the elements? Really? <clears throat> 
So this is what it means to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. You're not properly considering the mystical body of Christ, his church, your brothers and sisters. And in so doing, you become guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord because you are essentially saying it was wasted. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, I think he's talking about, the, again, the mystical body of Christ, the church. Those who uh, eat and drink without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, now he's going to tell them how to do it right, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things, I will give directions when I come. So, we declare the Lord's death on our behalf, the ones taking the supper. He died for me, right? We declare that, all right? But then flip that around. Something else is happening too. Remember, we talked about last week, there is an obedience element to baptism, right? We're commanded to do that. And we are saying, okay, we're recognizing the lordship of the triune God, really, not just Christ, but yeah, Christ, when we are baptized. Well, the same thing is present here. There is an obedience element. We're told to take this, and we're told to take it in a right manner. But God's also communicating to us, just as in baptism, God's also communicating to us. This is the gospel, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed to save us. This is a picture of the gospel. Um, all right. So that is... Um, that's what the supper signifies. Uh, before I move to the next part, I've said quite a bit. Does anybody have anything they want to comment on or questions or anything like that before I go to the next part? All right, I'm going to take silence as a no. So the next thing we're going to consider then is its covenantal function. Because remember, this is a sacrament of the new covenant, right? So what is its function within the covenant? So baptism serves as the initiatory sign of the covenant. Okay, you're only baptized once because you only enter the covenant once, right? The Lord's Supper serves as a sign of confirmation to the believer's continuance in the covenant, though. We don't just take the supper once. We keep taking it and keep taking it and keep taking it until either we die or the Lord returns. Sure. So baptism is the initiatory sign. So you only enter the covenant once, so you only are baptized once. Right. Um, but the Lord's Supper is a sign of continuance within that covenant. And we stay in the covenant forever. Once you enter the new covenant, you don't exit. So that means we either take the sign for the rest of our lives or until the Lord Jesus returns. Okay? That's also why the only proper recipients of the supper are baptized believers. Not believers, 
baptized believers. Okay? <clears throat> you are baptized and visibly enter the covenant people, right? That's how you join the church of Jesus Christ, is you're baptized. Not saved that way. Saved before you're baptized, but visibly speaking, that's how you join the church, is you're baptized. Well, this is how you continue. This shows our communion with Christ and, as we just read in the passage in 1 Corinthians, with each other. Consider the body. Well, if I'm correct in my interpretation, and that is a reference to the mystical body of Christ, that's showing our communion with each other in Christ. Okay? Now, that is key, communion with each other in Christ. That's what brings us in communion with each other. That's what's represented in the supper, is Christ. Additionally, as the confession states, the supper is to be a bond and pledge of our communion with Christ and each other. So this is the confessional position that I'm putting forward. In other words, it is a visible sign of continuance in the covenant for the visible church of Christ, previously marked, visibly marked, as such by Christian baptism. Now for this, flip one chapter backwards, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so this is going to be uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, the supper. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Sounds like real presence. It sounds like a participation in Christ's death. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, so number one. Chapter 10 is, of course, the context of chapter 11, which is why I would argue the body is the mystical body. I think he pretty clearly spells it out there. Uh, but what I want you to see by reading that is, to sh is that you see it's showing communion with each other, not just with Christ. We all participate um, through this sacrament. All right, now... After saying all that stuff, let's circle back around what I started with. <clears throat> let's consider what the principle of sacramental union uh, that we've discussed earlier means when it's applied to the Lord's Supper. Again, looking at chapter 30 of the Confession, in section 7, we read this. Worthy recipients who outwardly partake, uh, partake of the visible elements in this ordinance 
also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. I included this section because I want to make clear the confessional and more importantly, I believe the biblical position is not that the ordinance is a mere signatory ritual as many Baptistic churches have come to teach. Rather, we affirm the real presence of Christ in the sacrament, though not as the Roman Catholics or the Orthodox or the Lutherans affirm it. It is not a physical presence, but a spiritual one. Again, the confession states the body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. Just as we see the, the bread and the wine with our physical eyes, the body and the blood are spiritually present inwardly to the believer through the sacrament. So in other words, we partake of Christ's body and blood in a real but a spiritual sense just as we partake of the outward elements of bread and wine in a physical sense. But You're saying to do it every time we gather on the Lord's Day? Right. <laughs> well, no, I, I actually think you're absolutely correct. I, I think if you have a merely symbolic view, and that's all it is, it's just a symbol and nothing more than a symbol, I think that would lead to doing it less. You have a, you have a lower view. Yeah. Uh, 
<clears throat> so I I do agree with you. I, I do think um, first of all, if everything that we've said this evening is true about the sacrament and uh, Christ is spiritually present in it, um, and it does impart grace, not in the sense that by Taking the outward elements, somehow we're saved. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not arguing for that. But I'm, I'm saying it does impart grace. Uh, then why would you not want to, just from a practical standpoint? But then the other thing is, so what you just said brought this passage to mind, um, and I am a little off of my notes here, but that's fine. That's okay. Um, I, I I would argue that even scripturally, we should do it uh, just, just purely from the, a command standpoint i think we should do it weekly um uh so in acts chapter two and the question is is this prescriptive or descriptive okay i understand the debate um but what it's, it's talking about the very very early church um but what it says there is uh, acts chapter two starting in verse 46 it says and day by day Sounds to me like, yeah, yeah, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Okay, I think the breaking bread there is not merely we're having food together, although I do think they were doing that. You're right. I think that this is going to include the... Um, well, actually, yeah, go back up to verse 42, you're right. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's what we do when we preach, right? Apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out. So, um, yeah, I, I think the pattern that is laid down, whether this is prescriptive or descriptive, either way, I think you can clearly say the pattern that was laid down is when we come together, we preach the word, we declare the word, we fellowship with each other, we pray, and we do communion. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> primary element absolutely no and it should be that that's the that's the reason that i'm so strongly to emphasize that i think even though it may have become a majority view that that the majority baptistic view that it is merely symbolic uh number one i think it's a reaction against roman catholicism that's the first thing but then secondly i think it went too far um and in so doing, one, they left scripture. And then number two, uh, what you're doing is you have a low view of the sacrament. So if you have a low view of it, well, of course, you're not going to participate in it as much because you don't understand the importance of it. <clears throat> uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, right here you have four elements. 
teaching, fellowship, breaking your bread, prayers. Um, I think maybe you could add one more in there. It would be baptism. That's what that's what the church did. That's what they and that's what we should still do. See, even if this is descriptive, I still think it lays down a pattern that we should follow. Right. Right. Continuance. Right, right. So, and, and I guess this too is just kind of a point of clarification, but uh, I think I may have said this already, but I'll just repeat myself. Uh, that's why only you're only baptized once. You can be dumped as many times as you want, but true baptism only occurs once because um, you only enter that covenant once, right? So, all right. Well, any other thoughts or questions or anything? All right, if not, then we are finally to the end <laughs> um, discussing at least the chapter on covenant theology. Um, we have completed our consideration of 1689 Federalist understanding of covenant theology. So um, I know that we've been on this for a while, but the reason that we've been on it for a while, I hope you see, is it's super important. Um, there are so many things that are affected by how we view this. Um, you get this wrong, you can get the sacraments wrong, uh, you can get uh, you can get your eschatology wrong, you can get your ecclesiology wrong, you can get I mean, if you if you go far enough, you can even have a wrong view of salvation. I mean, it's extremely important to have a right view of covenant theology because what we read in the confession. Um, what is our salvation is the gospel, but uh, we are saved by way of covenant. What did Christ say when he instituted the supper? This is the new, or this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, right? So this is the means by which we're saved. It's pretty important. Um, so I do hope that, as I realize it's been very long, but I really hope that it's been helpful. Uh, it was long on purpose because I felt like it was that important to go over it. I hope it's going to help you uh, as we continue through the confession. I've already told you, um, even though we're leaving the chapter on covenant theology proper, um, the rest of the confession is covenantal very much. Um, that's in the backdrop of the rest of the entire confession. So, um, just like the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't ever really leave uh, covenant theology. Um, all right. If nobody else has anything to add, we'll go ahead and pray and dismiss. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we do express our gratitude, our thankfulness that you have graciously chosen to enter into not only covenant, but a saving covenant with us. Um, we recognize we are completely unworthy uh, of that, and thus it has to be of grace. Um, most of all, we are thankful for our great mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.